0: So welcome to week two of our survey in the book of Psalms. You'll find that your handout is two pages, just a little bit of uh, instruction. There's the regular handout, and then on the back of the second page is lyrics to Psalm 16, which as I promised last week, we will begin for the rest of the weeks of this survey to sing one of the Psalms that we're surveying. And so, have that at the end when Rod comes to lead us in singing. But let's begin. I'll read Psalm 29 as our prayer to get started this morning. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says, glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Amen. Amen. So now flip back, if you turned there, you might not have, but turn now to Psalm 16. As today we will look at Psalm 16 and Psalm 22, as we're looking at two of the psalms in book one of the psalms. And you'll notice as I read this in a moment, this psalm divides neatly into two parts. And it's outlined on your handout, there's part one, and then what I'm going to call a hinge or a transition between part 1 and part 2, which relates and connects to both parts of the psalm. And so, we'll see that in verses 1 through 6, David describes the affections or the desires of the man who has an undivided heart. And in verses 5 through 11, David describes the blessings that come to that man who has an undivided heart. So, Psalm 16, a mitkam of David Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in Thee. I said to the Lord, Thou art my Lord. I have no good besides Thee. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be, will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their libations of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. And my cup, thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. And my flesh also will dwell securely. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy, in thy right hand there are pleasures forever. So, at first, a quick reading of this psalm might make us think initially that David is crying out for deliverance of some sort. In verse 1, he does ask to be preserved by God, and he also declares that God is David's refuge. But really, everything that follows in the psalm tells us that this is a psalm of confidence and trust. It's not a plea for help. And so, as I said, the first half of the psalm describes the way that the affections of this psalmist are undivided. They're set entirely on God and on God alone. So let's look at each of these. As I said, first of all, refuge in verse 1. David says that he takes refuge in God. Now, refuge is a common theme throughout the Psalms. The Hebrew verb form translated in English, take refuge, occurs 25 times throughout the Psalms. And in fact, in the front door of the Psalms, which we read last week, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, at the end of Psalm 2... It says, blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. And I think for David to take refuge in God necessarily means that he's entrusting himself to the Lord to the exclusion of any other refuges to which he could run or turn to. And then he enlarges this thought in verse 2. He says, I said to the Lord, thou art my Lord. And you'll notice probably your Bibles, when it says, I said to the Lord, that word Lord is in all caps, perhaps. But then it says, thou art my Lord. And the second time it says, Lord, it's not all caps. And so what is David saying? Well, when it's all caps, that's the way our Bibles normally translate God's covenant name of Yahweh, Lord. David says to his covenant Lord, thou art my Lord. And he uses a different word here the second time, which is the word Adonai, which you're probably familiar with. And this is one of those Hebrew names for God that means master or owner. And so now David, I think, is uh, asserting that not only is he, uh, he belongs to God by covenant, but he also is declaring full allegiance and submission, saying that God is his master Also in verse 2, when he says, I have no good besides thee, that might sound a little strange to us. What is David saying when he says this? Because it might sound like that um, David says that God is the only good thing that he has when he says, I have no good besides thee. Surely there were other good things in David's life. Just like probably in our lives, we have a number of good things that we enjoy. And in fact, submitting ourselves to God's lordship doesn't mean that we have to turn away from or shun all of the good things in our lives. No, we realize that the good things that we enjoy are gifts of God's grace to us. And really, I think that the English translation we have in the NAS and also the ESV might not really be giving us the best sense of what the Hebrew is saying. Um, Gerald Wilson was helpful and he said that literally you could translate this, you are my good There is none above you. So really, I think what David is saying, not that I don't have anything else good, is that God is my highest good. I have no other good above the Lord. Whatever good things I have, God actually exceeds them all. And then in verse 3, David says that not, not only are his affections tuned to God, they're also tuned to God's people. Some of the Hebrew vocabulary in this verse is also um, perhaps a bit tricky. But he says that as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the ones in whom is my delight. We should understand the word saints as simply talking about the people that believe in God, believers, saints as holy ones, We are classified as saints. David is saying that he not only delights in leading God's people as king, but he delights in God's people themselves, being in and among them. And no doubt, one of the reasons he delights being among God's people is that they also have their affections tuned to God and seek to live under his lordship. Now, when we connect verse 4 with verse 3, we see one of the many places where the psalmist is contrasting the two ways of living, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. We also saw this in the front door of the Psalms last week where in Psalm 1 contrast these two ways and notice the way that David sets up the contrast. He's just described the way that he delights in God's holy ones, his saints and then David describes the way of idolaters, that is, those who worship false gods. Let me just read verse 4 again. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their libations of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. So first of all, let's consider the second half of the verse. Um, Really, David is stating in the negative what he has already stated in the positive, and that he's determined to worship God and worship God alone. And he also highlights some of the ways, um, aspects of pagan worship that were common in David's day and would have been common among the peoples that surrounded Israel. First of all, he describes the way that these, these idolaters would have been pouring out these blood offerings. And David says he will not engage in this. And then secondly, he says he will not take their names, this is probably the names of these pagan gods, on his lips. He will not speak the name of these false gods. And so really David isn't just talking about affections here, he's talking about actions, specific acts of worship. So that as he asserts his determination to worship God and worship God alone, I think really in the background here is the first commandment, which of course prohibits the worship of any other god. Now David's not using the specific language of the commandment, and he's not really using language from the Mosaic uh, covenant at all, but I I think this is the way that the Psalms implicitly refer to the covenants. And that David is simply saying he's determined to worship God in the way that God has said he should be worshiped which of course includes the law that God has given. Though his determination is not just his affections and his desires, but it also affects his will. His desires, his devotion to God affects the way that he lives. He's determined to live in a way that's different than the pagan people around him. And in the first half of the verse, he gives another reason why he's determined to live this way determined to have an undivided heart. And this time, not from an underlying covenantal standpoint, but really from a practical standpoint. And I think it's actually profound where he says, the sorrows of those who have bartered or hastened after another god will be multiplied. David is uh, observing what he has seen in the lives of those around him that seek after false gods. And what he has seen is that their sorrows are multiplied. And I think actually we know this to be true. Because we probably experience this in our own lives. For whenever we give ourselves to an idol, whenever our heart is divided, or sometimes if we even wholeheartedly give ourselves to sin, I think we'll inevitably find that the idol that we put our faith in or the God to which we have given ourselves to, or the sin we've given ourselves to, will result in sorrows for us. And those sorrows, in fact, will be multiplied. I think this is simply the natural consequences of sin. It could happen quickly. It may take a long time. Um, But sooner or later, we will find, I think, as David has found, that sin pays bitter wages. And that our worship of another God And I'm not talking about Baal or Ashtoreth here. Our idols are actually far more subtle and respectable than those guys. But I think we'll find that our sin brings consequences for us, for others, and of course a heavy burden of guilt such that our sorrows are multiplied. And then comes this hinge or this transition in verses 5 and 6, which I'll read again. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. So now David is making a transition from the affections of a man who has an undivided heart to the blessings that that man enjoys as a result of his undivided heart. And the language that David uses here is metaphorical. He's using language of how the promised land was divided up among the tribes of Israel. Portion, inheritance, lot, lines, that is, boundary lines, like on a surveyor's map. But, of course, David isn't talking about the physical boundaries of the land. He's saying, actually, that David is much like the Levites, which, of course, didn't receive a physical allotment of land, no, God himself was the Levite's inheritance. And so David is saying in the same way that the Lord is his portion of his inheritance. And as such, David says he delights in that inheritance. And really, even though that's an inheritance that he can't see or touch, because he's not talking about terra firma, he's talking about something he can't actually see, but even so, he describes it as something that's pleasant and even beautiful. So, David's affections have resulted in contentment, and his desires are satisfied in God. And really, this is the first blessing that comes to a man that has an undivided heart, contentment and satisfaction in God. Now, as our survey progresses, we will see psalmists in dire circumstances. And in fact, in just a few moments, in Psalm 22, we will see this. But we would do well to remember that the psalmist's contentment and satisfaction never comes from their circumstances. that never comes from whatever physical blessings that they enjoy. No, the psalmists are satisfied and content in God. The next blessing in verse 7, David basically describes wisdom as being a blessing that comes to a man with an undivided heart, with his affections tuned to the Lord David says he receives counsel and instruction from God, and no doubt through the means of God's Word. And then verse 8 describes another blessing, not wisdom, but stability. It says, I will not be shaken. Notice the reason for David's stability. It's because God is at David's right hand. It is God's nearness in his presence that brings stability to David's life. And then verse 9 describes not wisdom or stability, but security. David will experience the blessing of dwelling securely in God. And then verse 10 actually, I think, describes a blessing that goes beyond something that David could have really even understood. Talks about resurrection, actually. And we're going to hold off on talking about that verse for just a moment. But finally, in verse 11, David describes three more blessings, following God's leadership on the path of life, joy in God's presence, and then pleasures not only in this life, but forever. So, in this psalm, as I said, David has enumerated the affections of a man with an undivided heart and the blessings that come to that man. Now, your outline already asked the question... But we need to ask the question who is this man? Who is the Psalm 16 man? Who is the man that has an undivided heart? Well, I can't speak for you, but I know that it's not me because I think my heart is always divided. Now, by God's grace, I may be growing in grace and seeking to walk faithfully according to what the Lord has revealed in His Word, but I think my heart is always divided. I'm never wholeheartedly seeking after the Lord. And really, I often feel like David when he prayed in Psalm 51, my sins are always before me. Well, if it's not me, then is David the Psalm 16 man? Well, it's true that Scripture makes clear, and we're familiar with this, that David was a man after God's own heart. It's clear in Scripture that David had a strong desire to seek after the Lord. But we also know that David made a number of profound mistakes in his life that had dire consequences not only for him but for the entire nation of Israel, for his people. So I think despite these ideal affections and blessings that David is describing here, I think we have to realize that David didn't live his life with an undivided heart. No, And I know you see this coming, but there's only one man who can qualify as the Psalm 16 man. And that must be Jesus Christ. Because whatever man could honestly claim to only and ever take refuge in God, to have no good above the Lord, to completely delight in God's people, to refuse to worship a false god or seek after an idol, also to be perfectly content and satisfied in God, and to enjoy all of the blessings described in the latter half of the psalm. Well, I think now we're in a position to consider verse 10 because the blessing described in verse 10 hasn't yet come to David, but it did come to Jesus. Again, verse 10. Thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Now, You might be well aware that the apostles in the church in Acts referred to this verse on more than one occasion. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, quoted Psalm 16.10, and then he said this in Acts chapter 2. He made this argument. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. And then Paul, on his first missionary journey at Pisidian Antioch, he quoted Psalm 16.10 in Acts chapter 13, and then he made this argument. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and he was laid among his fathers and underwent decay but he whom god raised did not undergo decay so both peter and paul knew that david was speaking prophetically here he was speaking prophetically of jesus because psalm 16:10 was not fulfilled in david now don't misunderstand david's soul is alive and well even now in the presence of jesus along with all of those who have died in history in Christ. But David's body hasn't been raised. By now, his body has certainly returned to dust, wherever his tomb might be. Now, David's body will be raised, as will all of those in Christ someday when Jesus returns. But the only reason that David will be raised, the only reason that any of us in Christ will be raised, is because Jesus has been raised. And so, one day, Psalm 1610 will be true for David as it will be true for us in Christ, but not yet. So, if you or I were to use Psalm 16 as a prayer, or if we were to sing Psalm 16 as we will in a few moments, we should remember that you and I are not the Psalm 16 man or woman. We should remember that neither is David. Only Jesus is the Psalm 16 man. And this is important because I think in order for us to rightly pray or sing the psalm, we have to sing it or pray it in Christ. Because we know that our affections and our will are not always wholeheartedly devoted, they're not always tuned to the Lord. But Jesus's were. Our hearts are often divided. But Jesus' heart was always undivided. And importantly, Jesus' single-hearted devotion to the Lord was part and parcel of His active obedience for us when He was alive on this earth. That was obedience on our behalf that was for us. And so when we sing or pray Psalm 16, really, I think we should think about the gospel and praise God for sending us a Psalm 16 man who lived for us. And, as we will see in Psalm 22, He also died for us. So turn over a couple of pages. Psalm 22. I think there's two things to think about as we read Psalm 22, especially in light of what we've just seen in Psalm 16. And that in the same way that Jesus is the Psalm 16 man, so he is also the Psalm 22 man. Now, of course, even though David is the author of Psalm 22, just as he was of Psalm 16, Old Testament scholars are agreed that there really is nothing in David's life, at least not that we know about, that actually approximates the degree of suffering that David describes in Psalm 22. Psalm 22. We should remember that when we read it. But secondly, if Jesus is the Psalm 16 man, then presumably he should have experienced the blessings described in that second half of the psalm. But as we read Psalm 22, it appears that perhaps rather than experiencing all of those blessings, it appears that Jesus experienced a curse. Rather than experiencing joy in God's presence it appears that Jesus experienced abandonment. Rather than being preserved and secured from harm, Jesus experienced violent suffering and death. Now, I think this is a bit of a conundrum for us. How do we resolve the way that Jesus is both Psalm 16 and Psalm 22? Well, of course, there is a solution, and you'll probably arrive at it before I do. But let's read Psalm 22, where David says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet thou art holy, O thou who art enthroned upon the praises of Israel, In thee our fathers trusted, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered, in thee they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord, let him deliver you. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But thou, O Lord, be not far off, O thou my help, hasten to my assistance, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen, thou dost answer me. I will tell of thy name to my brethren, in the midst of the assembly I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob, glorify him, and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard, "'From thee comes my praise in the great assembly, I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord of the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. So, a longer psalm than Psalm 16, but it won't take us as long to work our way through it. Conveniently, though, Psalm 22 also divides into two parts, similar to Psalm 16. There's also a transition in between. The first part of the Psalm, verse 1 through 21, is a lament. And we probably know that psalms of lament are common in the Psalter. In fact, there's more psalms of lament than there are psalms of praise. Now, that might surprise us but I think we only need to be reminded that the psalms come from the psalmist's daily life experience. And their life experience, like yours and mine, is probably not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. From time to time, and for more, some more than others, we all know disappointment, pain, and loss And I think for this reason, we can be grateful that we have psalms like this. The psalter is filled with psalms similar to this, numerous psalms of lament, because they can guide our praying and our singing, even when we're hurting. And really, this follows the regular pattern for a lament psalm. It does follow the psalmist through his profound sense of loss and suffering, but then it concludes and is also interrupted by praise. So let's briefly trace how David does this. First of all, verse 1 and 2, he does complain of abandonment, that he's been forsaken by God. David is crying out for help, but God is not answering him. Now I think behind David's sense of abandonment is the fact that David knows that God understands what David is undergoing. God could respond to help, to intervene. But at least up to this point, God hasn't yet. But then in verse 3 through 5, all of a sudden, even at the very beginning of the psalm, faith breaks through. And he focuses on God's holiness and God's trustworthiness based on God's past faithfulness to Israel. And really, these first five verses of the psalm are kind of a little case study in the way that psalms of lament work because David has initially given full vent to his complaint. He said something pretty hard in verse 1 and 2, but he doesn't stay there. He still finds reasons to praise the Lord. And again, I think this is instructive for us, not in the sense that our pain isn't really painful, nor in the sense that in our suffering we just need to praise our way through it, as some might suggest. But I think the instruction here is that while it's perfectly okay for a Christian to lament and cry out to God, we as Christian people must continue to be people of faith. Even in the dark, we can find God to be faithful. In the same way that David sees that God has been faithful in the past, So this should give hope for David's future in spite of whatever David is experiencing in the present. And then verse 6 through 8 returns to lament. He complains this time not of God's failure to answer but of God's failure to act. David describes himself as being a worm. How much lower can you get than a worm? David sees himself as a reproach, despised by men. And then in verse 8, David's quoting what other men, his enemies, are saying about him. No doubt, very sarcastically saying, oh David, just let God deliver you. And I think that would have been all the more galling for David, knowing that up to this point, God hasn't delivered David. And then verse 9 and 10, faith breaks through again. David focuses this time on the fact that God has been David's God since David was a baby, or even before that, since David was in the womb. And I think this is probably, again, a hint that whatever David is experiencing, he knows deep down that God will continue to be faithful to him, just as he always has throughout David's life. And then verse 11 through 18, kind of a larger section, they detail this trial a bit more, give us a bit more information about what David is experiencing. And really, these verses, if someone had clipped these out of their Bible and showed them to me and said, where is this in the Bible? I would have said, well, this must be from Job, because this sounds very much like the things that Job says in the midst of his suffering." But I think, if nothing else, that's just an index to the degree of the suffering that David is attempting to describe. And really, verses 16 through 18, again, Bible scholars can't really find anything in David's life that really approximates what he's describing. His hands and feet being pierced, his body being wasted away and on display for others to see, his clothing divided up by lot. These things, as far as we can tell, never happened to David. We'll return to this in a moment. Verses 19 through 21 are a transition, the hinge between part 1 and part 2 of the psalm. And these verses have the first real requests or pleas. Where David asked for God to not be far off, to hasten to his help, that he would be delivered from the sword and saved from the lion's mouth. And then, at the end of verse 21, David finds that God is actually no longer silent. God has answered, From the horns of the wild oxen thou dost answer me. That is, again, this is metaphorical language. I don't think David was literally being thrown around by the horns of an ox. But I think he's saying, In the worst part of my ordeal... Because you might think that if you really were being thrown around by the horns of a wild ox, it's kind of a bit late for God to respond. Maybe. But I think that's the point, is that David is saying, when my situation was the most critical, that's when God has answered. And I think this reminds us that God answers and God responds in his timing, not in David's timing. But this is important to realize That initially, David has complained of abandonment in verse 1, but in verse 21, we can't forget that David was not, he didn't remain abandoned. God has answered. And then the second part of the psalm turns again from lament to praise, and it doesn't turn back. Verse 22 through 24 describe the way that David and other God-fearing Israelites in the assembly praised the Lord because God has, in fact, not hidden His face from the afflicted. But again, when the afflicted cried out for help, God did answer. And then in the last section of the psalm, verses 25 through 31, it's not only David and Israel that praises the Lord, it's all the ends of the earth. All the families and nations of the earth worship before thee, verse 27 says. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over all the nations. And then verse 30 and 31 conclude the psalm by looking far into the future, even to the year 2020 and beyond, declaring that generations not yet born will serve the Lord and declare his righteousness. So, A number of things could be said at this point. First of all, I think it's easy to understand why Derek Kidner calls Psalm 22 the psalm of the cross. Because in numerous places throughout this psalm, we see prophetic descriptions of things that happened to Jesus when he was being crucified. Or we find the very words that Jesus chose to pray when he was on the cross. We're going to go back and look at each one of these briefly now. And I think we'll see clearly how Jesus is the Psalm 22 man. Back to verse 1. Again, familiar to us are these words quoted in Matthew and Mark's gospel. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know that Jesus said this on the cross. And of course, much has been said and written about what kind of theology lay behind that. A lot could be said about what did Jesus mean when he said that. Well, I would recommend to you a book by John Stott called The Cross of Christ. It dives in a lot more than I can do this morning. But really, I think the thing we need to realize is that in Jesus quoting this first verse of Psalm 22, that whatever degree of abandonment that Jesus was describing, and of course we know a couple of things that it wasn't. There was no separation among the Trinity. We know it wasn't that. We also know that Jesus was not expressing a a loss of faith or despair, because that would have been sin. We know that it wasn't that. But whatever degree of abandonment or God forsakenness that Jesus was describing, we should remember, and we'll see this in a moment, what we saw in Psalm 16 that ultimately Jesus was not abandoned. He would not be abandoned to the grave. Keep that in mind. Then in verse 6, where David describes being a reproach of men, I think this is a connection back to one of the servant songs in Isaiah 53 that described how Jesus would be a reproach, despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, from whom men hide their face. And then verses 7 and 8 describe insults and public shaming. And we know that these were fulfilled in the way that the onlookers at the crucifixion, they sneered at Jesus and they wagged their heads, it says in Matthew 27, in just the same way that David says here, the onlookers said to Jesus, oh, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. And then in verse 14 and 15, while not directly quoted by Jesus or the gospel writers, I think it speaks clearly to the way that Jesus was scourged before the crucifixion. And of course, the crucifixion itself. Understanding the things described here are bones being out of joint, strength dried up, being laid in the dust of death. Verse 14 speaks to um, the tongue cleaving to the jaw, which could be an indication of profound thirst which would have a direct fulfillment in John 19:28 where Jesus said, I thirst. Now interestingly, the last part of verse 16 kind of unmistakably looks like it must be referring to the crucifixion where David says they pierced my hands and my feet. But just a word of caution, in all the times that verses from Psalm 22 are used in the New Testament to describe what happened to Jesus, this verse is never quoted. And in fact, the Hebrew in this verse is fairly tricky and it can be translated differently that despite the fact that it looks like, well, clearly this is describing crucifixion, hands and feet being pierced. I think we have to admit that really it might not be, but that's not really a problem. We just don't want to find a prophetic reference where there really isn't one. But however, there is no debate about verse 18 where it describes garments being divided up by lot. We know that this happened to Jesus. They divided up his garments and cast lots for his clothing. So, at this point, we might revisit the conundrum that I suggested earlier. That why is it that Jesus, who should have experienced all the blessings described in the latter half of Psalm 16, stability, security, and joy in God's presence... It also appears that he experiences the cursings of reproach, physical suffering, and abandonment in Psalm 22. How do we resolve this? Well, I think it's a two-part answer. First of all, we should understand that Jesus experienced the suffering of Psalm 22 so that you and I could experience the blessings of Psalm 16. That's the first and very simple answer. And it's a wonderful answer, because that's the message of the gospel. that Galatians 3:13 says that Jesus was made a curse for us. If Jesus had not been made a curse for us, then it would be us that would experience ultimate God-forsakenness and loss. So that's the first part of the answer. Also recall what the writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews twelve two. He said, For the joy set before him, that is Jesus, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what was the joy that was set before Jesus? What sort of joy lay behind the cross and Jesus' death? Well, here's the second part of our answer, and I think it's found in both Psalm 16 and in Psalm 22, because again, Psalm 16 describes the joy set before Jesus and the fact that he would not be abandoned to the grave, nor undergo decay. I think Jesus' resurrection to new life and ascension into heaven as a man in a glorified body brought directly back into his Father's presence He would there, even now, be experiencing fullness of joy and pleasures at God's right hand forever. And then the second half of Psalm 22, I think, also speaks to this half of our answer. It says it in different terms. Let me read verse 22 again. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. Now, this is interesting because you could easily see how David fulfilled that verse because David would have been, as it were, his king leading God's people in praise, declaring God's name in the midst of the assembly. That makes perfect sense for David. But the writer to the Hebrews also takes this verse and applies it to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, I'll just read a little excerpt from verses 11 and 12. He says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren, and he's talking about us, not ashamed to call us brethren, saying, and then the writer of the Hebrews quotes this psalm, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And I think this is important because as often as we think about God as our Father, and of course we should, how often do we think about Jesus as our brother? But this is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Jesus is not ashamed to call them, and again, the them is us, those who he's bringing to glory. He's not ashamed to call you and I his brothers and sisters. And so I would suggest that part of the joy set before Jesus in in enduring the cross was that he might join with us, his brothers and sisters, in proclaiming God's name in the assembly. And I think Psalm 16 also speaks to this. And the way that verse 3 talked about David delighting in God's people. I think we should also understand that as much as David delights in the saints who are in the earth, so Jesus delights in the saints who are in the earth. That should be a great encouragement, I think, and assurance to us that our elder brother Jesus delights in each one of us. And that we, in fact, were part of the joy set before Jesus to endure the cross. And then the rest of Psalm 22, I think, again, adds to our answer to this question. Because this latter half of Psalm 22 describes praise that could only have ever taken place. that could have only been made possible by the cross. Again, verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord And all the families of the nations will worship before thee. Now, In order for that to take place, the work of redemption wrought by Jesus' life and death would have to take place. The only way for Jesus to bring many sons to glory, that is sons from all over the world, all nations and families of the earth, the only way that Jesus could do that was through the cross. And really, verse 27 isn't just looking prophetically forward to the cross. I think it's also looking backwards to the covenant that God made with Abraham. When, Abraham told, uh, when God told Abraham in Genesis 22 that in, in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And I think we understand that the only way that all the nations of the earth can be blessed, Jew and Gentile alike, is in Jesus Christ. And then one more comment. We should not miss out on the certainty of this work of redemption described in Psalm 22. Look again at the last two verses of the psalm. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Now again, these verses are are describing the praise that you and I engage in each time we worship the Lord. Because Because of the cross, we can worship and declare the Lord's righteousness to our children and our grandchildren. We proclaim the salvation that God has made possible for us, that he's accomplished for us in Christ. And the last words of the psalm where it says, he has performed it. Some Bible scholars say that actually Jesus' words on the cross, it is finished, refers back to these words of the psalm because it's describing finality. It's describing something that has been done. So we realize, I think, in Psalm 22, of course, and many other places in Scripture, that God in Christ is the one who has accomplished our redemption and that nothing is left undone. Nothing is lacking, and so we know that salvation belongs to the Lord, and as such we love to sing his praises, and Jesus delights to join with us, joyously declaring God's name with his brothers and sisters. And so those are a few things for us to think about as Rod comes to lead us, and we sing Psalm 16.
1: Let's stand together. You'll find uh, the lyrics on the back of the second page. If you uh, don't have a handout, we'll just shuffle on over next to somebody who has one. And uh, you don't know these lyrics, probably, yet. You know the tune, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. So let's sing together. Preserve me, O God, for in you do I trust. My soul to the Lord has said, you are my Lord. No goodness have I beyond you and my joy. I find in the godly, the noble on earth. Those worshiping other gods multiply griefs. I will not pour out their libations of blood. Nor will I upon my lips take up their names. The Lord's my inherited portion, my cup. My lot you maintain and the lines fell to me. In pleasant lands I have a good heritage. The Lord who gives counsel to me I will bless. My inmost self teaches me all through the night. The Lord ever present before me I keep. He stands at my right hand, I shall not be moved. My heart's glad, my soul joys, my flesh rests in hope. For you will not give up my soul to the grave. Your Holy One you will preserve from decay, the pathway of life you will show unto me. In your glorious presence is fullness of joy. Your right hand holds pleasures for me evermore. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending the man of Psalm 16 and the man of psalm 22 who has an undivided heart and who lived and died took your wrath upon him that we uh, might become children of god we pray in his holy name amen